Hi, it's Phil here. Dean Delia is a really, really interesting educator with a passion for making a difference in society. He's moved into a role at the Princess Trust base in Melbourne. He's full of ideas about ways in which we can use education to provide the social leadership that we need to make a difference in our world. I'm really looking forward to talking with him. Let's go. Dean, it's great to have you on the other end of a Zoom today. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. Really excited to, uh, to have a chat this afternoon. Yeah, look, it's great that we've been able to um, connect with each other. And I'm really, really keen to learn more about your work, both about you and also the work that you're doing and, and to help us think through some of the issues about an education for tomorrow's world to help kids to thrive in their world. Why don't we start with a little bit of a story about you? How did you, how did you get to where you got to today? God, how long is a piece of string? Where, where do we start? I think one way to answer the question, Phil, is that I've really followed the advice that my parents gave to me really early on, which was a little bit different to the advice that was given to a lot of friends of mine. And that was to do the things that I'm interested in, do the things that I'm good at, but do it to the best of my abilities. And I'll unpack that a little bit further, I'm, I'm sure, as we, as we chat. But, um, you know, growing up first generation Australian, like many people's uh, stories and, and, and uh, families' stories, my family certainly came here for a better life, for opportunity, and their understanding of what that might be and, and how education plays into that. Whilst they didn't have the, I guess, the research that we now have and, and that I have access to through my role at Prince's Trust, they took a different approach to a lot of first generations as Australians. You know, if I speak to a lot of friends of mine and, and certainly a lot of young people even today uh, who come from first generation back, backgrounds or are, you know, are migrants themselves, the story that comes from their parents is very much, you know, do a pre-described uh, career path, you know, be it become a doctor, become an engineer, become a lawyer um, or something like, or become a tradie or whatever it is that's within their world. And they know uh, my parents didn't do that. They, they simply said to my siblings and I, as I said, you do what you're interested in. You have the accountability towards it, but make sure that what you do is with a strong work ethic and to the, to the best of your abilities. And lo and behold, all these years later, if I actually tie it back, that's, that's actually the, the premise for the work that I do now at Princess Trust. And actually really plays, plays out and speaks a lot of truth when you think about the fact that we're now in the fourth industrial revolution all jobs have been disrupt, disrupted, all industries have been disrupted. And, you know, I guess that, that understanding of being able to be agile and, and create your own path is, is more important now than it ever was. That's absolutely fascinating. So my father was a migrant and my mum was first generation immigrant and she was a doctor. And of course, I went and studied law. But then I was given that same sort of freedom, really, I guess, to do what I wanted to do and, and study where my passions took me. It's just that what I imagined I would be doing when I was 17 change when I was 18, 19, 20, and so on. And I kind of fell into education. And uh, I can remember after about six weeks of teaching history and, and, and coaching cricket and debating and things like that, thinking, I can't believe they're going to pay me to do this. Mm. This, is just the, this is just the best thing in the world. What was it that took you to the broader world of education? So I, I grew up uh, in Melbourne's western suburbs and went to a uh, public school where there were a lot of opportunities for young people who actually did want to learn. And there were some incredible teachers there that really helped me on my path. I also realised pretty quickly, though, that 
uh, I was also in an environment where education wasn't necessarily valued. And I mean that amongst my peers. If you were smart, if you were academically inclined, uh, you wanted to keep that pretty quiet because it meant a couple of things. A, it meant you were going to get more work without any additional perceived reward from, from teachers. And B, uh, you are going to be na named and labelled by other, other uh, students as like a smart kid, which wasn't necessarily a good thing in my school uh, environment. I worked out pretty quickly how to game the system. I worked out that if it was a 45 minute session, I could do the work within about 15 minutes. Uh, if I did that at the start, I'd get more work. So I'd typically do it towards the end and then muck around for, for a half hour. And I was one of those kids that always got the report card saying, you know, got good marks, but is disruptive, could be doing more and so on. So I'd worked out the system pretty early on. So you learned how to game the system. You, you, were, the, you were the disruptor. That was effectively, you know, in hindsight, that's what I realised is yeah. that, you know, there was an opportunity for me to game the system and work it to, to, to my advantage. Then I got, when I got to the sort of uh, later years in school and you know, towards year 11 and 12 and really was questioned by my parents, and some really good teachers on like, why am I doing this? You know, I'm getting okay marks, but I could be doing something, you know, I could be performing to a higher level. That's where I was kind of, un uh, I started unpacking and, or thinking about education as a career path. I remember specifically, I was in year 11 and my English teacher was struggling to, un to unpack a concept for the class. And I just, you know, got in front of the class and effectively said, if, if you think you can do it better, why don't you? And I did. <laughs> And I got some pretty good responses from some of my classmates saying, you know, you've got a bit of a knack for this. So I thought I'd give uh, education a go. I didn't really realise at the time that that was going to become my life journey. I didn't realise it was going to become a passion. But I think what I learned through that experience as a student and also a student in a particular environment where education wasn't necessarily viewed by everyone in the same way, uh, that there was an opportunity for me to, I guess, pay forward, but also to, you know, throw my, my hat in the ring and actually try and do something about uh, making the system even better. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? You know, the, the, a whole bunch of the character education research that we've been doing over the past five to 10 years suggests that character and competency is something which we learn at school and then we do, but then we need to pay it back by teaching it on to other people. Mm. And I think, we, I think we have a much stronger sense that we need to be encouraging students to be doing this deliberately these days, as opposed to stories like yours, my story's not, not, not that much dissimilar to, to it as well too, that you kind of fall into this habit of needing to help other people learn and then suddenly you've got the bug and then away you go. I think our understanding of learning through a whole bunch of other professions uh, now and leadership. I think other sectors and professions are catching up with education. I think people are realising now that to lead in a workplace means you need to be teaching those around you rather than testing those around you. Does that, does that make sense with what you, you've come across? Uh, absolutely. And we're seeing it. Uh, you know, when we talk, a lot of what I do now is a focus on future of work. And there's so much talk about enterprise skills and the sort of non-technical skills, what used to be called soft skills and, and what leadership looks like, what the next generation will be looking for uh, from an employer, uh, what they'll be looking for from companies. And it's quite interesting that this concept of uh, emotional judgment, uh, self-management, 
you know, ethics, citizenship, all of these things really start to tie together. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing that in this fourth industrial revolution, uh, that there are new skills, new mindsets, new capabilities uh, that we're all going to need. We know that in education, uh, we've known about this for quite some time, and we know that there is a real want by educators to, to innovate. And we also know that we are in a system that was designed for the first industrial revolution. And there's all sorts of challenges um, that lie within that as well. So yes, we're, we're on the forefront. And I think that there is some really amazing things that are happening. And in a lot of ways, we play, us in education, play a very key component. Us, government, business, we all sort of have to come, come together and, uh, and you know, think about how to either create a new system or really work with the systems that we have to really set young people up for success. Isn't it interesting that just in a couple of minutes there, you phrase so much of the challenge that we've got in education today. And when I, when I start to think about leadership in the context that you've just described, the system that we've inherited is one that's based on received wisdom and a known way of doing things. And leadership, which is largely management of that, which suggests a compliance-based world. Mm. And yet the world that we're stepping into is not a compliance-based world. You need to have experience of what disruption is like. And if that means you, you've got some disruption or disruptiveness in your own background, well then, well then so be it. Certainly divergent mm. thinking seems to be really, really important. Mm. And then you need to be able to take a sense of social purpose and apply it to your work. You're not just doing a job, it's a vocation, it's a calling. So we, we left your story off when you're in year 11, year 12, and you're just thinking about getting yourself a job and, and, mm. and where you're going. Walk us through your training and your education from there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so had that, that first sort of taste when I was in, in year 11 uh, of what it might be to, to be in front of a classroom and to teach someone something and for, you know, a student to actually get it, to get a concept and, and to be able to, you know, see them light up. So that took me to, uh, you know, really considering education. Uh, and as I studied my uh, VCE, uh, I put the education. It was interesting. My two options were marketing or getting into teaching. And I figured I'll start with teaching because uh, there's a really nice rounded transferable skills that you can get within teaching. And then I'll go into something else. Uh, so, so in my mind, I, I kind of already made the decision. I didn't have any base for it, but I kind of had an inkling that I would work within education or educating people, but not necessarily stay within the classroom. Nevertheless, I did move into teaching and I actually uh, went to university at Deakin in Burwood and I intentionally chose that. I grew up out in, as I said, in Melbourne's West, very, very multicultural, very diverse. And I intentionally wanted to move myself into, I guess, a different environment where people were different, where, you know, had, had different lived experiences and I wanted to push myself out of the comfort zone. So that was really interesting. And I'll never forget walking into uh, a lecture in my first year, it was a history lecture, and walking into one of the large theatres and seeing just the sea of blonde hair, blue eyes. And then there was myself. Uh, and a handful of others who were people of colour. And we kind of all gave each other a bit of a nod, looked at each other and went, okay, I guess we'll wear the, uh, <laughs> wear, wear the diversity. And uh, some of them are still very close friends uh, to this day. But I thought that was also a really interesting experience. Um, and, and again, intentionally chosen to break myself out of my world, to, to develop, I guess, new networks, new experiences, and really get an understanding on others' lived experiences as well. Um, I think that was, whilst it wasn't a, a formal part of my education, was absolutely a key part to setting up for, I guess, some of the, the things that would happen later in life as well. What do you reckon you took from your migrant family 
into that educational context? What values, what, what experiences, what priorities, what, what sense of purpose did you take with you? So it's quite a, um, it's a, it's, it's, it's quite a loaded question uh, with, with sort of multi-layers for me. Um, and, and, it's, and, and, it's, and it's deliberately a very yeah. loaded question because I, <laughs> yeah. I, want, I want to dig into this because, you know, yeah. just, my background is not that much different from yours. Yeah, your yeah. So, so it's, it's important to understand this stuff. So I'm still the only person on my mum's side of the family who has ever been to university and certainly from, from um, the generation that migrated over to Australia. Uh, in my immediate family, I'm the only person who did go on to university, although my siblings did go on to you know, further study in their own career paths. Um, and I say, it, I say it almost with hesitation because whilst that was an important thing for me, and certainly I know it was an important thing for um, particularly for my father, who was always academically inclined, uh, but didn't have the, the opportunities that I, was, I, I had. It was an important thing for me to be able to take that leap. But I also say it with hesitation because I recognise that university is, is one path uh, and taking that sort of that opportunity was, was great for me, but it's not the be all and end all. And certainly as we see, you know, the fourth industrial revolution really kick in, you know, universities, as they evolve, will, will, you know, play different roles of importance. But certainly for me, playing that role, uh, having a chance to go to university was massive. Uh, and I felt the, the both the, the burden, but also the pride that came with being able to wear that uh, on my back, um, not just for myself, but also for the family. So certainly there was a, um, a motivation to do well. There was also a lot of fear and uncertainty uh, and a lot of loneliness, really, uh, in going through that experience. And still to this day, you know, having that lived experience to some extent, you know, that isn't necessarily shared or that is not the same lived experiences as many people in my, uh, in my family. Yeah. So it's an that, interesting one for me to reflect on. Is that a great responsibility for you? I think I felt it at the time. Uh, and certainly if I go back to the, the, um, you know, earlier comments, that concept of work ethic, uh, was really, really ingrained in not just myself, but in my siblings as well. Absolutely. That idea of whatever it is that you do, you know, you do it to the best of your ability. There is certainly, a, you know, felt the um, pressure of, of, you know, the story, you know, the immigrant story of, you know, others sacrificing for us to do well. So that was certainly there. Um, but, but it certainly, I think, worked as a driver more than, than, than anything else. So I, I, I'm going to come back to this story in a moment, but just to jump forward a little bit there, the stuff that you learned about responsibility and about self-respect and about diligence and hard work and so on, how does that, how has that played out in your career to date with the kids that you work with? Yeah. So uh, what was really interesting is that in my first teaching role, so I finished um, my degree at, at Deakin university. I had an opportunity during that time to go to multiple different schools and school settings um, to do my teaching rounds. Ironically, I actually went back to my old, high school as well for one of those um, teaching uh, experiences. And I wasn't necessarily, as I mentioned before, I academically did okay, but my behavior wasn't necessarily the best. So I do actually remember the assistant principal at the time who was my year nine coordinator, uh, literally as I walked in to sign in for my first day of uh, being a student teacher, saw me, turned around, literally fell off her chair and said, I knew you'd come good one day. <laughs> so, and then I ended up uh, speaking at a year 12 graduation a couple of years later, which was interesting. Oh, nice. But um, so I had a chance to see multiple different, uh, I guess, uh, socioeconomic areas. What, and what, what did you teach? 
Uh, technically, I was English in history, but... Uh, I, I, knew, I, I knew you were a good man. I knew you were a good man. <laughs> but I never that's, really that, taught those that's, classes. That's, that's just for you, Deprado. I know you're <laughs> listening out there somewhere. It just goes to show that, that we, that, you know, history trained people, we've got something going for us. So, yeah. well, so you, you trained in English and history. What did you end up teaching? Yeah, so I ended up... So I did my, as I said, I did my sort of teaching rounds in diverse uh, schools, studied in English and, and history. But when I actually went and taught in the first school that I taught at, it was... Uh, it was a school with uh, significant working with communities of significant disadvantage, uh, multi-generational unemployment, complex needs, and the school environment itself. You could tell very, very quickly that, you know, if we were just trying to focus on academic achievement, that that was going to be, uh, it, it was only going to be part of the picture. Um, what I learned pretty quickly is the work ethic that I grew up with wasn't necessarily there in the same way as a cultural norm um, for that particular community. Um, so we, we absolutely needed to sort of start right from the start, look at uh, what's the, what are the social needs for this, these students? What are the emotional needs for these students? Uh, what are the skills that they're going to need to be able to not just survive, but to you know, have the opportunity to thrive when they're already in a community that is going to be quite challenging um, and has a lot of challenges uh, ahead for them. So I guess what I, what I learned is the work ethic that, that I was instilled with and that I kind of, grew, even though I grew up in an area where there was a lot of social challenges, there was that sort of, I guess, un, underlying belief that if you work hard, uh, you're typically going to do well. I didn't really have that in my first teaching experience. So we really had to start from the drawing board um, and being a first year teacher, uh, I was absolutely supported by the school. They effectively said, you know, you've got new ideas, you've, you're fresh out of uni, here's a budget, here's, here's a, you know, uh, an opportunity, go and, you know, effectively help us to rewrite a middle years curriculum. So I think that was really the start of uh, my moving, moving into new ways of thinking about education, new ways of learning, new ways of presenting and getting young people engaged in lifelong learning was really through that experience. You know, and so even though I was English history trained, you know, we were back, and this is sort of 2002, 2003, we were running classes on inquiry-based learning and, you know, literacy and all the different types of literacies that were there and, uh, and, and available to explore. We were working on enterprise-based programs and social action-focused, you know, initiatives with year seven students in, as I said, in like early 2000s. That must have been just such a buzz going in there. You're probably absolutely exhausted by the end of every day, being a, being a first year out, because that's always the case, isn't it? It takes a while to adjust. It was what an absolute roller coaster, but I, you know, I bet it was. I bet it was. I bet it was. What did you learn about middle schooling? What, what are the most important things for educators mm. out there listening now in understanding how to connect with and how to help middle school students achieve success? Phil, you know, uh, and I say this with absolute humility. I've had some incredible experiences and opportunities throughout my career um, to work with young people in the middle years across the globe um, and almost every continent um, from, you know, the most elite independent schools, not just in, in Australia, but abroad also to literally working in, um, you know, rural uh, Kenya, six and a half hours out of Nairobi and, you know, some of the uh, on paper worst schools uh, across the U.S., every sort of diversity you can imagine. And what I just keep coming back to is young people are people <laughs> and we're all 
you know, facing our own challenges. Uh, we're all on our own stages in the journey and we all respond really well to people being authentic, people being vulnerable and genuine and treating us, you know, as human beings with our own lived experiences and our, and our own journeys. What I really have found in working with middle years, and I, I, I love <laughs> I love working with, with uh, young people in that age group, is they're, they're no bullshit. <laughs> they call it like it is. They expect you to call it like it is. And if they can smell anything that's anything other than, uh, than authenticity, you know, you're going to lose them. Universally, if, you, if, you, if you're coming in with that mindset of being there to learn, being there to help and, you know, and genuinely being willing to kind of go there with, with students, I'm sure the same thing would have been said 50 years ago, you know, 100 years ago, and, and hopefully will still be said in another 100 from now. The challenge a lot of the time is, is remembering just the fundamentals because you get caught up in the stuff of doing a job and doing school and you forget to stand back. And we teachers as a profession, we don't habituate reflection enough because we're so busy. We're so in, in there and doing stuff every day that we forget to stand back and go, are we really attending to all of the human beings sitting in front of us? Are we aware of the fact that we've got 10, 15, 25, 30, 50, 100 lives Mm. in a room with us, in a space with us right now. And are we doing the things that we need to do that? I'm going to, if I can, I want to take you into three of those things because, again, there's some research that, that we've been doing around the purpose of schooling that we've, we've, we've sort of flowed into this school for tomorrow thing that, that we're doing now. The first of those is belonging. So we, we would say that the starting point for anything is that students need to belong. Can you tell us an example from your teaching career of where you had more success in helping kids to feel as though they belong in an education or in an educational setting? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, I, the first thing that popped in uh, to my mind, so I, I almost, I need to say before I say the next thing uh, as a sort of caveat that um, I worked in my own classroom in that school setting that I, I mentioned earlier for a year and three terms before being poached over to the not-for-profit sector. Um, and uh, I started my early career working in uh, uh, with a company called the Education Foundation, which mm -hmm. uh, later merged with uh, the Foundation for Young Australians. Um, at the time, we were, I actually had my students at the school that I was working at involved in a program that was called the City Centre. It was effectively a five-day immersion uh, city-based Im immersion where uh, students would choose something that they wanted to research uh, and go out and research it. They would report on it, but they would also have an opportunity to, to do a lot of, I guess, personal development throughout that week as well. Uh, and I love the program so much that when the opportunity came up for me to go and uh, work <laughs> and, and facilitate the program, I took it. That was sort of my transition from the classroom um, into, I guess, not-for-profit. Um, and I also also always give the caveat that I'm hesitant to give any sort of advice, particularly to teachers, because any teachers that are still there and still doing it and in the classroom, my hat goes off to you. And, you know, the lessons that you're learning every day are invaluable and, you know, and it's the real work. Having said all of that, the moment that I think it really started to come together for me that there was these additional skills and mindsets and opportunities for, for learning that young people needed was at the city centre. We used to get up to th uh, three different schools and up to 120 students um, going through this program at the same time. And what we generally found is that by about day three, about around Wednesday, um, that's when any sort of tensions, either cultural tensions or just like young people being young people and uh, would usually come up. Um, so what we would start the day with on that first morning was we uh, worked with the Reach Foundation who would come in and run a, a workshop with young people 
that wasn't about learning about a topic. It was really about uh, young people having an opportunity to reflect on themselves and uh, what they what they value, what they're interested in, and really have a, a moment to just be really honest and vulnerable. And it was incredible. Young people would set their own group norms. Uh, there was a lot of uh, healing work that would be done. There was a lot of breaking down of like barriers and divisiveness and a lot of collective identity that was really built in, in those workshops. And literally you would see, you know, a school from country Victoria and an inner city school and, an, you know, a gender specific school at seemingly had completely different experiences who all of a sudden could find their commonality. And what I really learned through that is that we as educators, we have a duty to go beyond the curriculum and really find those opportunities for us to educate young people on our collective identity on what community means and help them to, I guess, navigate, particularly now when you look at quite the, you know, the divisive uh, world that we live in to find ways to work through and combat some of those divisive messages. Yeah, it's too important to be left to accident, isn't it? It's, you've got to be intentional about this stuff. You know, sometimes we find with teachers that those who feel comfortable doing this sort of stuff will dive into it. And then there are others who feel might feel on occasion that it might be too touchy-feely mm. and they kind of want to get into content. And you've got to sit there and go, before we get there, we've, we've all got to feel as though we actually belong in this space with each other. There's a second thing I want to ask you about then. Once we go from belonging, we go to potential and we go to performance. Can you tell me about one of the programs that you were involved with where you were able to see improvement in the way in which kids achieve their potential and perhaps tell me why it worked? So I lived overseas for, for a few years, uh, was based out of Toronto, Canada, uh, but uh, also got a chance to do a lot of traveling and a lot of work across North America. One of the programs that I was really fortunate to be part of co-creating was a mentorship program out of Boston, Massachusetts. The short version of it <laughs> is that uh, there was a, a emerging university right next to uh, quite a disadvantaged community. And effectively, what we were able to create was a summer mentoring camp, effectively, where students who were from the disadvantaged community who had made it through and transitioned over to the university would become mentors for year nine students from the local high school. And if those students stayed in that program until year 12, they got a free education. But they had to stay in the program from year nine through to year 12, come every summer. And effectively what it was, it was a, it was a camp where young people were learning social skills. They were learning the importance of social action. They were taking social action uh, and developing their leadership capability um, as a result. Not only that, they were also seeing role models um, from other young people like themselves from their community. And uh, that's really the one that stands out, Phil, uh, for both a sense of belonging and potential. These were young people that had been earmarked. And I guess it's <laughs> to sort of make the connection now, probably very similar to me, which is probably why it stands out in the sense that they, you know, showed promise from an academic perspective, um, but also were facing some significant sort of social challenges, had potential, but could have very easily gone down a different pathway. Um, and if I think about the instant results that we would, we would get after even just, you know, a two week summer camp is pretty phenomenal. But I think the best example is that I'm, I still am in contact with a lot of both the mentors and mentees uh, through social media. And while some of them unfortunately didn't complete the, the, the program, those who did have gone on to do incredible things, um, have gone on to start their own families, have gone on to be pillars of uh, society in, in their, in their own right. Um, and have continued to do some pretty amazing social action work in their communities, particularly around uh, Black Lives Matter um, and continuing to be involved 
in social action um, across the universities and, and, and schools. Uh, that just sounds like a tremendous potted summary of what we would call a whole approach to character apprenticeship and that real importance of having someone who's walked the way themselves reach behind and, and bring someone along with them. It's, it's, it's just so essential, isn't it? Do you want to give a shout out to the, any that, to that particular program so that we can, yes. we can make a mention of it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So it's called the um, FAM for Change program or, or Friends and Mentors for Change uh, that was uh, created by Bridgewater State University in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. So the FAM for Change program out of Bridgewater University. Folks, get, get on your Google and go and look <laughs> it up because it just sounds absolutely amazing. Third and last question for this conversation, if we can, please. Dean, we have, and it kind of speaks into what you were talking about beforehand. Again, we have a, a, a construct that says, if you feel as though you belong, you're more likely to achieve your potential. If you belong and you achieve your potential, you're more likely to do that which is good and right in your life. How do we help kids make good choices about doing that which is not only constructive and beneficial for themselves but more importantly teach them how to put the interests of others before themselves because that's that's where a life is well lived a lot of what i do currently uh, at princess trust australia is focused on future of work <laughs> and i think your question actually ties really really closely to what the research tells us and actually what young people are now demanding for as well there are two two of the 10 skills that we focus on, enterprise skills that we focus on at Princess Trust are professional ethics and global citizenship. And those, well, all, all 10 of those skills that we focus on are really world-renowned as the core skills that young people will need to be able to thrive in the, in the rapidly changing wor world of work. It's really interesting when you think about the fact that ethics and citizenship um, lie within those. And that, again, is coming from employers, but it's also coming from young people. So it's the, the question that you ask is how we actually set young people up. Well, I think um, a lot of the groundwork is already being done. You know, we, we know, and I'm not, I'm not, I guess, telling anyone who's listening anything that they wouldn't know, that, you know, one of the things that we hear so, so often about millennials um, and Gen Z um, is that they do care, um, that they do feel connected and they do want opportunities to, um, uh, to, to be in the conversation. So I think there's a few ways to answer that. I think that we need to include social action um, in everything that we do in, in, from an education perspective. You know, there are so many great organisations that are out there currently that are looking for young people to support them in their campaigns and their initiatives um, and in the, in the great work that they're doing. I think what often happens is that we tell young people that in order to be a leader, they need to go out and start something. And, and the, the reality is that there's already so much great stuff that's out there. So I think part of it is... Um, as educators to expose young people to um, some of the opportunities to get involved in social action, to get involved in citizenship that may, they may not already know about. So that idea of leadership through fellowship, I think is a really important piece. Giving young people, whilst they are still in uh, formal education, an opportunity to back a good idea, um, to see what, what great stuff is out there, to partner with organisations that are already looking to uh, work with young people um, and giving them a chance to back it. So what I'm hearing you say, Dean, that it's not just good enough to bang on at kids about doing the right thing and values and so on and so on. You need to engage them and get them practical about putting their values into action. You need to promote their agency. You need to promote their voice, their sense of who they are and how they might operate in the world. In, in other words, it's got to be an experience 
it can't just be a theoretical construct for students. This ties to the concept of, of career pathways and setting young people up for, you know, what the point of education is in the first place. If what we know is that in order for young people to make good career pathways decisions, part of that is for, for them to unpack who they are, what they're good at, what they're interested in, what they value, what they're passionate about, what legacy what they want to leave. Um, if, if we start to unpack some of these questions with young people, then I think what's, what's naturally going to happen is that we need to also include opportunities for, for them to get exposure to social action and citizenship and also be able to develop the skills that they will need to be able to have an impact, uh, not just through stuff they might do on the side, but also in a career path that actually, choosing a career path, I should say, uh, that may also include them having a positive impact on society. Imagine that, Dean. Imagine an education which gives kids an active experience at rehearsing for the citizenship where they can go out and make a difference in the world. That sounds like a wonderful thing. I really want to explore a little bit more of that with you the next time we have a conversation. Thank you so much. I've learned uh, so much about you. You know, we teach who we are. We can't help but teach from the core of the values that we've got and so much of the, the, the warmth and engagement and motivation and understanding and empathy. Just, it just seeps out of everything that you're doing. Thank you very much for the conversation today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you next time. Thanks so much, Phil. Thanks for the opportunity. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.